Prophets, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards. This is episode 22 of the Share Prophets radio show for the 3rd of January 2020. And here's your host, Tom Winifrith. Hi, this is indeed Tom Winifrith, and I am indeed in Wales by just 30 yards. Uh, welcome to the 22nd edition of Share Profits Radio, uh, the first of 2020. May I wish you a happy new year and a happy new decade. I know some folks say the new decade starts next year. They're pedants. It's a new decade. Welcome to what I suspect will not be the roaring 20s. What was your New Year's resolution? Uh, I did myself didn't set any New Year's resolutions, although I think the missus would like me to eat a bit and uh, to be a little bit less fat. Uh, but I set myself a few goals, one of which may involve being eating a little bit less, uh, eating a bit more healthily, uh, and being a little bit less fat. But what were your New Year's resolutions? I don't know. We all make them, and normally we all break them by about January the 5th. Uh, if I was to make New Year's resolutions for the folks operating in the small cap world, both on AIM and on the standard list of the main market, uh, my first and indeed only resolution for the CEOs, chairman and finance directors of such companies would be, uh, we will not tell any lies to investors during the coming 12 months. Now, you may say, but, but surely there are rules about this. Companies aren't allowed to tell lies to investors. They must always tell the truth. Indeed, there are rules about it. Uh, I can't remember, is it AIM Rule 10 or AIM Rule 11, which states that when a company has price-sensitive information to divulge, it must do so uh, via RNS, not via an interview with proactive investor, uh, as some companies uh, uh, like to do, but via RNS. And that information must be transmitted, it must be communicated in a way which is clear and not misleading. The intent must be, or the intent and the effect must be, to make investors fully informed of the nature of any development. Uh, that is the rule. Uh, but it is one which, sadly, during 2019 was broken all too often. There have been four companies uh, over the festive period where I've had a bit of a battle on this subject of lying. Now, uh, there are some people out there who say, ah, you only have to tell the truth in an RNS statement. Well, no, that is not the case. The difference between an RNS statement, which is the things you get sent out on Investigate or you see on ADVFN, the official regulatory news statement of the stock exchange, and other communications, is that an RNS statement is signed off by the nomad or corporate advisor. And in theory, at least, although I fear not really in practice. If the nomad, the corporate advisor, signs off on an RNS, which turns out to be uh, either misleading or a complete pack of lies, the nomad and corporate advisor is in deep trouble. In practice, of course, this rarely happens. Uh, there have been occasions when nomads have been censured for signing off on complete lies. One thinks of uh, how Senkos was censured for signing off on at least some of the lies put out by the great fraud Quindell, uh, although it signed off on numerous other ones for which it wasn't censored, and in the end the fine it received, uh, reduced for cooperating with inquiries, uh, was not enough uh, to make a severe dent in his balance sheet, not enough to deter his behaviour. The individual who had signed off on those lies uh, got a job at another firm and is now signing off on RNSs for fine companies such as Vasarian, uh, and we obviously know uh, how much due diligence he has done on those. I'm sure it's an enormous amount. For you see, the nomad must not only uh, 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 establish that the company's telling the truth, he or she must verify that. 
We had a case a few years ago with a company called African Potash, which is now known as Block Commodities and is uh, listed on the next lobster pot. It was, uh, and I'm sure still is, uh, a complete and utter fraud. We know that it has lied to the stock market three times during 2019. Uh, but back in the day when it was on the AIM Casino, it announced that it had signed deals, which thanks to a signed letter of intent, guaranteed that there would be an enormous inflow of cash. Its shares raced ahead on the, on the back of that, and it was able to issue fresh equity and keep the show on the road. The Nomad signed off on those RNSs. And uh, the fault is not with the company for having made it up, because in fact, uh, it didn't have the letter of credit from an international bank which guaranteed the payments. Uh, It didn't have a signed version. Anyway, it had no letter of credit. The fault is with the Nomad for not demanding to see the signed letter of credit. It failed to do due diligence, and it should have been, uh, that the Nomad was punished severely. Uh, As it happens, of course, this being the AIM casino, nothing happened. Uh, my point here is that uh, so, so an RNS is something which, in theory, you can establish is true, uh, uh, in that it is not only a company saying something, but the nomad, the advisor, has signed off on it. Of course, I'm afraid the African potash thing is not the only example of where nomads have failed to do due diligence. Going back to, I think it was 2015, I may have got the year slightly wrong, there was quite a big company called Silverdale, which put out an upbeat trading statement. Uh, Oddly enough, its shares uh, fell on the back of that. The reason was that the company's major subsidiary had had a winding up order uh, uh, five days before this statement went out. The Nomad didn't bother to do due diligence. uh, So it took 10 days for this fact to emerge uh, for the shares to be suspended and the company eventually to go bust and investors lose everything. The Nomad in that case was FinCap, uh, which didn't bother doing the job, which it is uh, well paid for, of doing due diligence. Uh, So what was said in the statement by Silverdale was correct. But he admitted this sort of elephant in the room that there was a winding up order against its main operating subsidiary. That was a failure by the Nomad. Of course, FinCap insisted it did nothing wrong. It was happy banking the fees and no punishment was handed out to FinCap. That is the way the markets fail in this country. Anyhow, an RNS, you should assume that what is put in an RNS is true and not misleading. Uh, The past few years have taught me that that isn't the case, but you should assume it. There are non-regulated ways of communicating with investors. The most famous or infamous would be paid-for interviews with people like proactive investors uh, and uh, Justin Waits, Justin the Clown, over at Vox Markets. Uh, these uh, uh, companies, uh, Proactive, Vox Markets, etc., uh, like to portray themselves as being on the side of the investor, giving you more information about a company. Of course, uh, their services are free to access for private investors. The people who pay the fees are the companies who like the soft interviews. These are unregulated. Now, that is not to say that you can go on to Justin the Clown's podcast or go on to Proactive Investors as a CEO and tell complete lies, because that would be a criminal offence. It's called market abuse. If you are giving misleading information to investors, which causes them to buy shares clearly at the wrong price since the information is misleading, that is market abuse. This is a criminal act. And therefore, you really shouldn't do it. It's a very naughty thing to do. It doesn't, of course, stop people doing it, uh, but it it is naughty. Uh, The difference, however, between a Justin the Clown interview or a a, a proactive interview uh, and an RNS is that there is no nomad to sign off on what is said. The nomads have no control whatsoever about what CEOs say in such interviews. Therefore, companies can make statements which may not be a complete and utter lie, uh, but which should be hard to verify. So, uh, a company CEO might say, we've just released interim results, which were uh, whatever they were. Uh, I feel very confident that the second half of the year uh, will be materially better, or actually just cut out the shorthand, the second half of the year will be better. Now, 
if you were to put that in an RNS, the uh, nomad would ask you to verify the statement, the second half of the year will be better. And that would uh, 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 mean the company would have to produce management accounts, uh, uh, cash flow forecast, show the nomad signs of its order book, etc. So you might have some basis for believing that statement. If, however, a guy just goes on proactive and says the second half of the year is going to be better, then uh, uh, the nomad has not signed off on it, the statement is not verified, and uh, 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 therefore uh, you would place rather less weight on it. But the subject today is not uh, what I talked about, is not a New Year's resolution asking CEOs of AIM and fully listed companies uh, uh, just to sort of be only make verified statements. It's to actually stop lying. You may find it incredible that companies can tell lies uh, and get away with it, because surely that is a breach of all sorts of rules. Uh, even on the upper Volta Stock Exchange, there is a rule against lying. Uh, there, the odds are that it is implemented fully. But in the UK, it does not appear to be implemented fully. Let me give you uh, uh, four examples which cropped up uh, over the Christmas period. Uh, the first is uh, a company called Zoetic. It used to be known as Highland Natural Resources, and it's a company I've been uh, uh, somewhat critical of uh, since its AIM launch, uh, indeed deeply critical. The company is now known as Zoetic, and it claims to be, it gets very cross if you describe it as a cannabis play. It says it is a hemp play, uh, although actually if you look at its website, it describes itself as a cannabis and a hemp play. But let's humour it and say it's a hemp play. Uh, the company recently uh, released interims, and in those interims it said that it had sold one of its subsidiaries from its old days as a sort of hydrocarbons business uh, for the price, principally price of naught pounds, and it sold uh, uh, that uh, enterprise on the 24th of July of this year. The only problem is that on the 25th of July of, uh, uh, sorry, of last year, 2019, the company put out its full year results and made no mention of this disposal. Indeed, said that it viewed the future for this subsidiary uh, with great optimism. Well, either the interims is a lie uh, or the full year numbers is a lie. Uh, one way or another, the company uh, has uh, told a lie. Uh, I mentioned earlier uh, Block Commodities, uh, 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 the uh, company run by uh, Lion Chris Cleverly, now on the uh, next lobster pot. This company, uh, twice in the earlier part of this year, said that it had, you notice the tense, had, it had raised £400,000 at seven one-hundredths of a penny. It put out two separate announcements stating that it had. Uh, a couple of months ago, it turned around and it said, actually, we haven't. Uh, as we alluded to earlier in the year, we were considering raising money, and actually we've raised less than £400,000, not a lot less, 388000 but only at two uh, hundredths of a penny. Well, there are three lies there. Uh, the first lie is the statement where it fessed up that it did a much smaller fundraising at a much lower price. And it claimed that it had only said that it had contemplated a fundraising at a higher price and a larger amount earlier in the year. That is not true. It's a lie. The company said it had raised the cash. And the second and third lies are the statements where it said it had raised the cash. Patently, the company has been lying to investors for the majority of 2019. That, to me, seems a very serious lie, uh, because if you bought the stock after the first or second lie back in the March of 2019, you would have been on the assumption that the company had the £400,000 in the bank, which, uh, for a company which actually had had all in the bank, like £25.50 or something, uh, that was a material amount, and that it had managed to raise this at seven one-hundredths of a penny, when clearly uh, the company is actually a completely worthless piece of shit, and fair value is naught p But there would have been some people who bought stock on the basis of the statement that the money had been raised at seven one-hundredths of a penny, and the money was in the bank. Based on the statement, the company has raised. The repeated statement. And uh, for months and months and months, there would have been people buying shares on that basis or uh, people who were already on the shareholder register thinking, well, perhaps the corner has turned. 
and not selling on that basis. So there are all sorts of people who are either actually defrauded uh, or potentially defrauded into buying or not selling shares at what was the wrong price. Finally, the company, after six or seven months, fessed up to the bad news. That, to me, is a far more serious lie. Uh, The lie of Zoetic and Highland Natural Resources is perhaps just one of timing. It it shows a a large degree of corporate sloppiness, uh, but it is one of timing. Uh, The third lie uh, 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 that uh, cropped up, uh, yes, again, is a a company which I've talked about quite a lot, uh, Big Dish on the standard list. Uh, the company which obviously marks itself out with an enormous red flag and as it has Zach Mir doing its PR for it. Uh, its lies are manifest. On uh, 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 May the 30th of 2019, the company said that it has uh, 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 enough funding uh, to execute on its business plans. Uh, people took that to mean that the company did not need to do a placing and the shares raced ahead to 9p. Uh, there were people who paid almost 10p per share for stock in the aftermath of that statement. Lo and behold, a week later, the company did a placing, raising 2.1 million at, I think, 6.5p. Uh, there would be people a bit, a bit pissed off with that. Uh, it then emerged when, on August the 30th, the company published uh, its final results for the year to March 31st, uh, that the auditors only considered that it was a going concern because it had raised that 2.1 million. We had, just before Christmas, the publication of uh, the half-year numbers to the end of September, uh, which showed that had that $2.1 million, uh, not been raised, the company would have had a negative cash of an awful lot, uh, probably about uh, a million quid, and negative net current assets of a little bit more. In other words, it would have gone bust. So clearly, that statement uh, of uh, 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 May the 30th was an outright lie, and people who paid up to 10p for the shares on the back of that uh, were defrauded. People who did not sell their shares at 10p were also defrauded. The shares are now just over a penny. The company uh, has shown a bit of consistency in the lying department. That is a monstrous lie. That is, on on a par with block commodities, it is outright fraud. Uh, The company, when it published its interim results, said that the uh, results were IFRS compliant. That was also a lie because I'm afraid uh, they breached Rule 25 and Rule 26 of IFRS. They were not compliant. Now, that, I think, is less of a lie. Uh, Maybe it is a lie, full stop, Uh, but it's a less of a lie. It just shows uh, incompetence, the fact that the finance director and the chairman, who's meant to be a city veteran, have absolutely no understanding of basic accounting principles. Uh, So it's sort of a lie generated by incompetence and not by uh, outright mendacity, as was the previous lie. Uh, What should have happened uh, with Big Dish? Well, of course, it should be reissuing its uh, uh, results so far. There is absolutely no sign of that. I picked up uh, on uh, 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 um, other lies uh, over Christmas, which came to a head, uh, concerning Anglo-African oil and gas. Uh, This was a company which was formerly run by two men, David Sefton and James Berwick, both of whom, thanks to pressure from myself on share profits, seem to have been uh, uh, resigned. Uh, Sefton and Berwick... Uh, uh, had another company, Anglo-Tunisian Oil and Gas, uh, which uh, made an acquisition using due diligence, uh, uh, which cost 300 grand, paid for by Anglo-African. I pointed this out and said it was a conflict of interest, and the two men agreed that when the deal completed, they would repay the money. Well, the deal completed some months ago, and finally the company fessed up uh, that uh, uh, Sefton and Berwick's company had only repaid 100,000 quid, and it was negotiating on the rest. James Berwick was negotiating with James Berwick. Uh, clearly, uh, an appalling conflict of interest. Uh, and it also showed bad faith. Sefton and Berwick had said the full 300,000 would be repaid. As things stand, uh, we were told that another 150 of the 300 would be repaid by the year end. Uh, that year end has come and gone. We've had no announcement from the company, so I wonder whether the money has been paid. And as for the final 50,000, well, that appears to have gone whistling. Uh, I put it to you that Sefton uh, and Berwick are liars. 
Uh, they said that they would repay money which to the company, uh, to Anglo African, which they were being well paid for running, running into the ground as it happens. And uh, uh, they didn't. They haven't. They probably won't. Uh, that is lying as well, is it not? Uh, and, of course, uh, it is a material lie. Anglo-African is currently in the middle of an almighty clusterfuck of a sort of bid battle and counter-proposals. But the reason it finds itself in that position is that it is almost out of money. If it does not get refinanced in some way or another, it will go bust uh, within four weeks. And one of the reasons it's in that mess is because various people owe it money, one of which being the company run by James Berwick and David Sefton. And they said they paid full, but they didn't. They lied. Well, as it happens, Sefton had form with a whole load of lies. Uh, he used to go on proactive and say the company was fully funded. That great flays, uh, which I'm surprised Elon Musk of Tesla hasn't trademarked, uh, and then do a placing the next week. He was a right old scallywag. The final lie is one I've mentioned so many times, I almost shouldn't mention again, but just for the hell of it. Uh, uh, James Draper, the CEO of Bidstack, uh, went on proactive. I know he was just in the clown, was it proactive? I can't remember. One of these paid for interviews on August the 8th, uh, which was uh, five and a bit weeks after the end of the half year. And he was asked, would the company meet the half-year revenue forecasts of Broken Peter House, uh, which were for sales of $1.75 million? It is absolutely inconceivable that as at August the 8th, Mr. Draper didn't know what the half-year revenues would be. Uh, if you are a company listed on AIM, you are obliged. I mean, it's not in the AIM rules, but your nomad, any decent nomad, uh, will insist. Uh, and the, the, the nomad who looks after uh, Bidstack, uh, uh, Spark Advisor, is not a totally rotten nomad. It's a sort of average, a sort of middle-of-the-table nomad. Uh, kind of think Everton, that sort of level. Not quite a, a Watford or a, a Norwich City, uh, and certainly not Liverpool or, or, or Manchester City, but it was Everton, middle of the table, sort of thing West Ham aspires to be. Uh, my beloved West Ham. Anyhow, uh, Spark is a decent firm, and therefore I think it is, it is inconceivable that Spark isn't asking uh, its client companies to produce management accounts and to give them to the Nomad within a month of the end of each month. And that means that the nomad can have a discussion with its clients about whether they need to update the market on trading, issue a profits warning, that sort of thing. Uh, so any decent company will be producing those management accounts and handing them over to the nomad. If a company has got absolutely no revenue whatsoever or bugger all revenue, it takes almost no time whatsoever to produce management accounts. If you are running a, a company with revenue of just a few thousand quid a month, uh, you can produce your management accounts. It's not hard because you know what your fixed costs are, your salaries. You can produce those management accounts within a few days. Share profits. We could if we wanted to, produce management accounts for the month of January, uh, we could do it, it would take us a few hours, we could do it by tomorrow. It wouldn't be hard. Uh, and our revenues for the month of January were pretty similar, actually, uh, to Bidstack's revenues, uh, sorry, for the month of December 2019, were pretty similar uh, to Bidstack's revenues for the month of 2019. Uh, not a lot. Uh, the point I make is that by August the 8th, Mr. Draper of Bidstack would have been fully aware that revenues for his company in the six months to June 30th were nowhere near the 1.75 million, or was it 1.85 million, that Peter House had forecast. It took until September the 30th for the grim truth to emerge. Uh, the grim truth was that revenues were just under 27,000 for the half-year period. Christ, even less than share profits revenues in the six months to June 30th. That is some going. But certainly way short of the 1.75 million forecast. Draper must have known. There is no question that he knew the company was way short of forecast. Yet, brazenly, he told listeners to the podcast, and it was indeed just in the clown over at Vox Markets, uh, which takes payment from companies like Bidstack in order to promote their shares. He told uh, the, the uh, dwindling band of listeners to Justin's podcast, yes, we will hit forecasts. He must have known that was a lie. Uh, and, of course, uh, the effect was that people bought the shares uh, at the wrong price. 
people, uh, uh, not only that, people who had somehow uh, got on the shareholder list and were sitting on big profits, decided not to take those profits because the company was on track to hit forecasts. Uh, and therefore, all of those people were defrauded. Uh, uh, there is a, a, a school of thought of saying it doesn't really matter if companies tell lies. Uh, what matters is uh, future profits. Well, it does matter, you see, because A, there is a potential uh, legal ramification. Telling a lie to investors, whether it's via RNS or via an interview with Justin the Clown or some other medium. Uh, Mr. Drake Brussy actually posted an upbeat trading statement via his LinkedIn profile in November of this year, uh, uh, just a few weeks before he finally fessed up. The company was going to miss fully a forecast by a country mile as well. Um, but uh, by about 99%, as it happens, uh, or 98%, something of that magnitude. So uh, it doesn't really matter on the medium. If you post misleading information, that is a criminal offence. So uh, there is a ramification. It doesn't matter what future profit's going to be. If your CEO potentially ends up in the slammer, uh, and is barred from being a director of a publicly listed company again, that is likely to adversely affect your business. It could be worse. It could be that the nomad decides that he no longer wishes to act for this company uh, because it's exposing itself to both reputational and regulatory risk and resigns. Now, if that happens in the current climate, a nomad resigns because a company has been telling porky pies, uh, it is very unlikely that any other nomad is going to act for it. You will remember uh, the great fraud of 2018, or was it 2017, CloudTag. was a bulletin board, darling. It was a company demonstrably telling lies. I demonstrated on share profits uh, why and how it had told lies uh, for most of, I think it was 2017, and the company was finally slung off aim in early 2018, but I'm maybe 12 months out. I demonstrated throughout that period of 2017 that the company had lied via RNS on a consistent basis and had misled the market about its revenues, etc., etc. It took a while, uh, but in the end, the nomad, in this case, Cairn Financial, uh, gave the company notice uh, and said it would no longer act as a nomad for the company. Uh, the company tried to get a fundraising away anyway, but when the people putting money in realised that the company was going to get slung off aim pretty soon, they withdrew that funding, and in due course, the company was slung off aim because no other nomad was prepared to act for a company whose nomad had resigned as a result of telling uh, the company telling blatant and massive lies. So there is a real risk. So it's all very well saying, oh, the company sold a lie last year, but don't worry about it, the future is bright. There is a risk that if you tell a lie, that it's just possible that someone in the city is going to show a bit of spine, resign as the nomad, maybe the regulators take action, and your share listing will be suspended altogether. Now, for nearly, for, in fact, for all of those companies that I mentioned uh, 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 in the prelude as companies guilty of lying, they are all loss-making. If they lose their listing on the AIM casino or the standard list or the next markets, they will not be able to raise money and therefore they will go bust. So not only will you not be able to trade the shares, but actually in the end you will have shares which are completely worthless because the company has gone bust. So there is the risk of that. Now, bear in mind that this is the downside case then you have to ask, why would a good company do it? And the answer is good companies don't need to tell lies. Good companies let their numbers do the talking. They let their products do the talking. They let their customer reviews do the talking. They let their happy staff do the talking. They let verified statements on RNSs do the talking. So good companies don't need to tell lies. If a company finds itself in a position where it has to tell a lie, and I think this is where I differentiate Zoetic uh, from the rest of the companies I mentioned, I think that was just sheer incompetence. It's not having to tell a lie. 
As it happens, I think the IFRS thing for Big Dish was also manifest and sheer incompetence, which, by the way, is not a good sign. You don't really want to be invested in companies which are run by complete incompetence. But it's not the same as telling a deliberate porky pie. Uh, in the case of the Big Dish May 30th statement, the bid stack statement, uh, or the block commodity statements, those are slam dunk porky pies uh, uh, with an intent to mislead investors. That's far more serious. So, uh, good companies don't do it. Any company doing that is therefore, by definition, a bad company. In the end, in my experience, like CloudTag, companies like that will simply, in the end, run out of other people's money. Uh, the other thing to bear in mind is I note uh, uh, some of the current uh, 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 deluded disciples of the bid stack story uh, take the view uh, that it doesn't matter if the company told a bit of a lie last year, in fact, told a couple of lies, because the future is so bright. And why do they think the future is so bright? Well, because the company's told them. The company's done uh, another interview with Justin the Clown or Proactive. It's not something that's come out as a result of a broken note from a house broker. It's not something that's come out as a result of an RNS. It's because the company's done another paid-for interview, and it said the future is bright. Well, uh, you know, if you are fooled by a liar once, that's understandable. I, it's happened to me. But companies have told me stuff, and it's totally untrue, and it's cost me a lot of money. Being fooled once is, is, is understandable. Uh, put it down to experience. But to be fooled two or three times by the same liar, uh, when you know that they've lied in the past, uh, would to me be an act of complete stupidity. Now, it's just possible uh, in the case of the bid stack that they're saying things are going to get much, much, much better, that they're telling the truth now. But would you really bet your hard-earned savings on that? Uh, when a company is formed in terms of telling porkies, uh, then you have to say the odds are that you really should risk weight heavily what they say going forward. And so I don't really care uh, if a company which is uh, uh, run by a proven liar says that the future is going to be absolutely great. Uh, uh, the odds are it won't be. Good companies don't need to lie. Well, uh, let's hope that all CEOs on the AIM Casino, uh, the next lobster pot, and the substandard list of the London Stock Exchange have indeed made a New Year's resolution not to tell any lies. I somehow think that they haven't. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, segment of Share Profits Radio. Uh, I will be back after the break with a few more thoughts on the macro themes and how this should uh, 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 shape your investment decisions over the coming 12 months. Uh, this podcast is brought to you free. Uh, it's brought to you uh, thanks to the kind sponsorship of Open Orphan PLC. Uh, I should declare I am an owner of these shares, which are currently around about 5p. Uh, I regard them as incredibly cheap. Uh, if you want to find out why they're incredibly cheap, they were my share profits tip of the year. Uh, the share profits to be the year number 19. I will include a link to that, and that will explain why I think the shares will be trading at 10p plus uh, really very soon indeed. Uh, anyhow, uh, I'm happy to take sponsorship from Open Orphan because I think it's such a great company. Uh, and uh, 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 thank you very much for your sponsorship. If you want to find out more about Open Orphan, read that share tip. Uh, listen to Cathal Friel in Share Profits Radio Edition 18, or follow it on Twitter. At Open Orphan. Uh, I will be back shortly with part two of the show. Uh, now it's time for a short break. Welcome back to this, the 22nd edition of Share Profits Radio, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards. Uh, I'm still talking for it, just as I was in part one. There is a feeling in some parts of the media, notably the right-wing media, uh, and certainly a, a feeling the Conservative Party wishes us uh, to all believe in, that following the general election uh, 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 triumph for the Tory party, uh, that the spirit of Boris, the spirit of can-do Britain, uh, means that this is going to be a great year for Britain, perhaps the start of a great decade, the Roaring Twenties. We shall see. I mean, don't get me wrong, I voted Tory at the last election and was delighted by the result, if only because the alternative, uh, a coalition of chaos, uh, led 
by a man uh, who has allowed his party to become a cesspit of anti-Semitism and is an open supporter of organisations like Hamas and is also a Marxist who would have destroyed the economy of the country. Uh, 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 He was just so awful uh, uh, that I'm glad the Tories won. But is it necessarily going to lead to a golden year for us as investors, as homeowners, uh, as business people? And is it necessarily going to lead to a decade of prosperity for all? I somehow doubt it. Whatever we like to think, we, we always have this belief in Britain that what is determining our future is almost entirely in our own hands. Uh, and so uh, whether we got out of the European Union or not would be the critical uh, factor driving the British economy. I'm not so sure. Uh, I'm very glad that we are leaving the European Union on January 31st. Uh, but of course, the exact terms of our departure uh, won't be known until much, much later this year. We have until the end of December this year, to negotiate a trade deal with the EU. It's possible we'll leave with no deal. We don't know what the terms of the deal will be. Uh, I support Brexit. Uh, It's been in my family for 45 years, as I explained in an article over on my own website uh, uh, just the other day. But I accept that there may be uh, some short-term economic dislocation. Uh, Long term, I feel confident uh, that Britain will benefit greatly from being able to strike free trade deals with uh, the rest of the world, uh, uh, with places where the economy, where where there's real economic growth, such as uh, uh, Asia and Africa, uh, uh, rather than just being stuck within the economic zombie, which is the European Union. It'll be of great benefit, I believe, to consumers uh, that tariffs on a whole range of basic foodstuffs will could be removed uh, if we left the EU and truly became a free trading nation. So long term, I have no worries about the nature of our departure from the EU. But in the short term, there could be disruption. Uh, there could be uh, adverse things in terms of regulation or in terms of tariffs, which hit certain sectors within the UK economy. I suspect they would hit uh, other sectors in the European economy far harder. But whoever said uh, that uh, those who ran the European Union are driven by uh, economic desire for economic good for the ordinary person, as opposed for a desire to create their own political project. Uh, For those running the European Union, the objective of these trade talks will be to punish Britain, not necessarily uh, to deliver economic growth for their own citizens. I digress slightly. Uh, My point is that Brexit is one factor that affects Britain, and I concede that it is likely that there will be some short-term adverse effects on some parts of the British economy. Overall, I'm not worried about the long term, but over the next 12 to 18 to 24 months, there could be some headwinds. However, as I noted before, we are the world's sixth largest economy, but our fortunes are often dependent not on domestic factors, uh, but on global factors. And the big factor driving the British economy and whether British shares do well and uh, British real estate proves a good investment is the growth in the global economy. And it is quite clear that global economic growth is slowing. It's slowing in China, although the statistics there are clearly bogus. Uh, It is very clearly slowing in India, Australia already uh, flirted with recession in the second half of last year. Germany, at the centre of the economic zombie, this is the European Union, uh, was teetering on the brink of being in recession. In the United States, growth slowed a bit, uh, but the economy is still growing. And in the UK, we saw the same story. We're doing well, but we're not doing as well as we thought. Now, what's going to happen over the next year? Uh, One factor, of course, is that in the United States, uh, we have a president, uh, President Trump, uh, who faces re-election in November 2020. For him, it is all about the economy. If the American economy continues to grow uh, at a noticeable rate, uh, then it is likely that he will hold those swing states in the Rust Belt 
places uh, like Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, and that he will win again whichever of the ghastly creatures uh, vying for the Democrat nomination gets the nod. If, however, the economy slows or even goes into reverse, uh, then I suspect Donald Trump could struggle. As such, I would expect the president to do everything that he can to ensure that he is re-elected. Uh, that means profligate government spending, and uh, that means tax cuts. Uh, not for the super-rich, but for corporations, uh, which should drive jobs growth, uh, but also for middle America. Uh, it won't do anything for the American deficit, which is completely out of control. Uh, for American debt, which is completely out of control. Uh, but it may uh, provide the stimulus needed to get Donald Trump re-elected, and that may provide a little bit of stimulus to the global economy. On the other hand, uh, there are all sorts of adverse headwinds. Uh, as ever, there's the risk of instability in the Middle East. Could America uh, find itself going to war with Iran? having been at war with uh, its neighbour Iraq uh, not that long ago. Uh, there is the threat of trade wars with China. There is indeed the very real threat that the Chinese economic miracle, uh, which in the eyes of many, including myself, has been built on uh, somewhat shaky foundations, uh, centrally dictated uh, uh, growth plans, not necessarily in sustainable industries, uh, a very crazy bank lending and some very shaky banks out there. Uh, a lot of speculation on real estate. There's a possibility that the Chinese economic uh, 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 juggernaut could come, what, come off the rails somewhat. And that, of course, would have very obvious and negative uh, implications for global economic growth. And I suppose there is the possibility that uh, Donald Trump may decide uh, uh, we don't know we're quite where we are with the trade wars with China, but it seems to be a vote winner standing up to the Chinese, whatever the impact is on the American economy. And we could therefore have further instability in that level. All of those things uh, make me a little bit worried about global economic growth. The thing that really panics me, of course, uh, is something, a theme that I have talked uh, covered many times in podcasts, uh, both this one and Bearcast over on share profits, and that is of debt. Uh, across the world, uh, we have governments uh, which are hugely overborrowed and continue to run reckless deficits. We have companies uh, in the West, certainly, uh, which are hugely overborrowed. They have leveraged up during the era of low interest rates, uh, either to make acquisitions, which don't always make sense, uh, or more dangerously, uh, to engage in um, industrial scale share buybacks, which create no value at all, create no assets at all, may artificially inflate the share price, uh, but has left many companies over leveraged. We have banking systems which in many parts of the world, notably the Eurozone, uh, but also China, uh, look incredibly fragile uh, and uh, are very vulnerable to any systemic shock. Uh, and, of course, we have in the West, certainly, uh, unprecedented levels of personal uh, debt and unprecedentedly low levels of personal savings. All of those are a real worry, and I do worry, and there has to be a concern, that after a bull market in equities and all asset classes, it's not just shares, and bonds, football clubs, fine wine. I saw Andrew Monk of VSA. Uh, boasting the other day that he seems to have dusted down a couple of old wine bottles in his cellar, which he bought at 10 quid a pop and were now worth 250 quid a pop. It didn't look to be particularly spectacular vintages, but what do I know? Uh, but he's made money. He's made money not because he's a genius. Well, of course, Andrew Monk of VSA Resources is a genius. Uh, uh, but I'm not sure that he is the Warren Buffett of the wine world. He's made money because we've had an asset bubble, the same thing that has driven up uh, the value of Mr. Monk's mansions in Cornwall and Chiswick, has also driven up the value of his equities portfolio, but also of his wine cellar. Uh, if he's got a bit of modern art on the walls of his house, it will have driven up the value of that. Uh, we have had uh, eight or nine, ten years. Why are we 11? 12. We're into the 12th year now. 
uh, of a bull market. These things don't happen forever. And we quite clearly do have asset bubbles. Uh, I haven't mentioned, uh, I mentioned residential real estate. There's also commercial real estate. There are all sorts of bubbles out there. Eventually, something has to give. All of these things uh, make me worried that global economic growth, uh, there are so many things which could provide a systemic shock to uh, the global economy. And it's an economy which would be very vulnerable because of all that debt at government corporate levels, because of the weak balance sheets of so many of the banks and as an individual level. And all of that makes me worried about the global economy. And I wonder if maybe... Uh, whilst I think about these things quite a bit, people who think about them not at all, but just think things aren't quite right uh, about the way uh, uh, the world sits. And that is going to impact on individual and corporate spending decisions. And it becomes a sort of vicious circle. So at a global level, I would see that economic growth is going to be pretty sluggish over the next 12 months. In the UK, we have that additional uncertainty. I don't think it's a major factor, but it's a possibility, the uncertainty uh, over Brexit. I would add that in the UK, we also have uh, a government which appears uh, committed uh, to pursuing some of the sort of policies which would have Mrs Thatcher spinning in her grave. Now, I don't believe that uh, the current government will be anything as profligate uh, as the alternative which which we were offered on December the 12th. Uh, 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 the profligacy of the opposition Labour Party was off this scale. But nonetheless, we do have a government which is, as things stand, running a pretty hefty budget deficit. As things stand, uh, government debt as a percentage of GDP, if one includes off-balance sheet items such as the student loans, which will be defaulted upon, and the private finance initiative contracts is well over 100%. That's far, far, far too high. Against all of that, uh, here we are at the top of an economic cycle, at a time when we have record employment, the lowest unemployment in my life, almost in my lifetime, back to 1972-3. We have a booming economy. Now, Everyone, Keynes from the left, Thatcher from the right, will be saying at this time one should be pruning government spending, trying to eliminate the deficit and perhaps get your government debt under some sort of control. Yet Boris Johnson was so desperate to win the election uh, that he has promised uh, far more spending uh, the National Health Service, which is a black hole, and we all know it's a black hole. Yes, it's going to be enshrined in law. It's going to become an even bigger black hole. There's going to be more money for teachers, for poli- on the police, on the armed services, on the roads, on the rail, on building bridges over puddles in the north of England in order to keep the new Tory voters happy, on more or less everything. Those vague commitments to reduce spending, which were in the last manifesto, such as increasing, decreasing the number of MPs in Westminster from 650 to 600, appear to have been abandoned. There's no reason why we need 650 MPs in this country. Uh, the United States has a population uh, which I think is something like four times as large as our own, uh, yet its House of Representatives has only 435 members. Why on earth do we need 650 MPs? Of course we don't. And it was a very welcome proposal in the Tory manifesto that it would cut that number to 600. It could easily cut it to 400, uh, but it would cut it to 600. That apparently uh, pledge has been dropped because it might annoy uh, some Tory MPs who would be out of a job in five years' time. I'm afraid all the signs are that this government is going to spend in a rather reckless fashion. I don't believe it will do much to stimulate the economy, given the headwinds that are coming from elsewhere. And indeed, uh, would it be desirable to stimulate the economy when you already have full employment? There are other measures this government which is proposing, such as increasing the minimum wage, which, of course, uh, will inject uh, wage inflation into the system. That's a very dangerous thing to do if the global economy is slowing. It will send uh, 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 some firms to the wall. That's a bad thing for the British economy. And that makes me a little bit worried too. Uh, it strikes me that the current government is a highly populist one, but the measures which it's implementing will, in the medium to long term, 
and not uh, actually be very popular in terms of creating jobs, for they will cost jobs, uh, and not very popular in terms of returning the nation's finances to a sound footing, because they will not. Uh, they will increase the government deficit, and they will increase the government debt to the point where at some stage it will become unsustainable. All of that worries me somewhat uh, about the British level, but the real factor is the slowdown in the global economy. And he says, for that reason, that I don't expect corporate earnings are going to move forward very uh, fast indeed. Uh, if one looks at the forecast for corporate earnings growth, they have been coming down and down and down. But there's always a dichotomy uh, between what the uh, uh, bottom-up analysts say, that is the analysts who cover individual stocks, and if you aggregate them, you get an idea of overall uh, earnings growth forecast for the market. And what the macro analysts say, uh, they make a forecast about the growth of uh, the economy, and then uh, 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 filter that through into how that's going to affect the earnings of UK-quoted companies. There's always a dichotomy. Those uh, 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 looking uh, with the bottom-up approach uh, always arrive at a far greater forecast of earnings growth than those who take the top-down approach. And I think those who are taking the top-down approach are far more likely uh, to be correct uh, in the current year. All of that means uh, that earnings growth will be fairly anemic uh, for UK-quoted companies. don't think it's going to be spectacular for companies across the world, but in the UK, it is unlikely to be terribly exciting. Now, you may say that UK equities have underperformed equities in, say, the United States, in fact, in most major markets over the past few years. That is undoubtedly true. Uh, in fact, uh, UK equities now are only back to where they were before the dot-com, a little bit higher than where they were before the dot-com uh, bubble burst in 2001. If you compare their performance to any other major market in the world, this has been shocking. Uh, why has that been? Uh, well, we've had years of economic mismanagement under Blair and Brown, uh, we, which almost bankrupted the country. Over the past few years, we've had a great degree of uncertainty about would we leave the EU under what terms. Uh, we've had the very real threat uh, that we might have had a government, uh, albeit probably a coalition government, led by uh, the crackpot old commie uh, Jeremy Corbyn. And that has been a real threat because Jeremy Corbyn would have been clearly very, very bad news for UK equities. So arguably, with a lot of those threats lifted, uh, UK equities are potentially, potentially, I say this, better value than other equities around the world. If I look at the US market, it is at an all-time high. Can that be justified by the underlying outlook for earnings growth? It most certainly cannot, uh, whatever my hero Donald Trump uh, likes to say. Uh, on fundamental terms, it looks hugely overvalued. The UK, by comparison, only looks modestly overvalued. But that's still no reason to buy. Moreover, of course, uh, asset classes are all linked. Uh, all global asset classes are linked. So, uh, for instance, when you look at the prices of real estate in London, uh, you should also look at the prices of real estate, residential real estate in New York, in Sydney, in uh, Frankfurt, in Paris. And if all of them are falling and one of them's rising, the odds are that the outlier will fall in line with the pack in due course. What, uh, what does this mean for equities? Well, if UK equities are moderately overvalued and US equities are hugely overvalued and other equities are fairly overvalued, if the US sneezes, Britain will catch a cold. We will not be immune to it. All of that just tells me this in terms of equities. I would caution you that this Boris enthusiasm, this let's get Brexit done enthusiasm, let's make Britain a great trading nation again enthusiasm, well, it may all happen. But over the next 12 months, that is not a reason to go fill your boots on an indiscriminate basis with UK equities. Sure, uh, you know, there are stocks out there which offer real value. Uh, and I've highlighted uh, 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 two or three of those in my own personal tips of the year. And the other writers on share profits have highlighted many more. So you have more than a dozen ideas uh, out of the 20 we served up, because we had quite a few sales, 
uh, you have more than a dozen ideas there uh, of stocks that do offer individual value. And there are stocks that offer great value uh, in the UK. But buying indiscriminately would be foolish. In terms of the other asset class I mentioned, that is residential property, residential property prices are still, in terms uh, of their relationship to average personal earnings, they are still at uh, 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 near historic highs. They're way off historic norms. Uh, and that suggests that there will be a further correction. Uh, now, I think one of the reasons I think we have further correction is that residential property is, to some extent, a global asset class. If property prices of, of prices of flats in New York fall by 40%, in due course, that will filter through to flats in London. And then that will have a knock-on effect in that there will be fewer ghastly rich people selling their two-bedroom flat in London to go and buy a, a big house in Bristol or buy half of an estate in Rotherham. Uh, that knock-on effect, the filter effect, uh, uh, means that this is truly a global asset class. And the global, uh, what you can see happening to the property markets all over the world, uh, India, Australia being big cases in point, New York, another case in point, is pretty adverse. So I, I'm cautious about residential uh, uh, property for that reason. There is the other reason which I would, would express, uh, express real caution, uh, and that is, I uh, remember what I said about the British consumer being overborrowed and undersaved. Uh, their finances are pretty uh, pretty fragile. Uh, what's that survey? Something like a third of people uh, would struggle to pay their mortgage if they lost their job, uh, even for more than a month or so. Their savings are so low, their borrowings, their commitments are so high. Uh, that is a concern. I noted earlier that the government has plans for a dramatic increase in the minimum wage. That will cause wage inflation uh, 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 through the system as people who are currently on what the minimum wage will be, will demand a pay rise in order to maintain their gap with the least skilled workers. Uh, uh, and that will send uh, some firms to the wall. That's regrettable. Uh, uh, what I think most experts agree, and I would, I would concur with this thesis, is that average wages will rise during 2020 and probably by more than inflation. However, at the same time, uh, employment levels will fall and unemployment will increase. And I think the government must shoulder uh, uh, is a bit of the blame for that with this minimum wage uh, uh, proposal. But it is largely a global thing, the slowdown in the global economy. All of that does have clear implications for the housing market. I, I suspect that most of people losing their jobs will be able to get a job uh, uh, reasonably quickly. But losing a job and suddenly having your supply of income cut off is a chilling and frightening experience, uh, particularly if you're sitting on a hefty mortgage. Uh, and it's not just you who suffers, because you will discuss this with your family, your neighbours, your friends, and they will think, well, what happens if I lost my job? Uh, at the moment, I suspect there are very few people out there who think about the potential risks to their employment. Uh, but as more people lose their jobs, it may only be a handful. Uh, the knock-on effect of other people thinking about it uh, will be uh, material. And that will deter people from taking on extra debts to move on up the housing ladder. Uh, uh, it is something uh, 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 which therefore will lead to fewer housing transactions. Uh, so, uh, there are all sorts of reasons why, uh, and we've already seen a sort of slight reduction in housing transactions. Remember that there have been changes to the tax system for buy-to-let. Uh, so, the returns that many buy-to-let landlords are making are now almost negative. Uh, uh, that is, is a, 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 a pretty adverse thing for the housing market. I suspect there is a material oversupply of buy-to-let properties out there. There are more sellers than buyers. And that should be a negative for the housing market. And, of course, the housing market can become a vicious circle. If you uh, see that the price of uh, your own home, when you look in the estate agent's window and you see you've got a neighbour's house up for sale, if you see that the price of houses in your street is falling, that is going to deter you from thinking of buying a house because you'll think, why the hell buy now? Why not wait a few more months and they'll be even cheaper? And that, of course, means there are fewer transactions since there are always forced sellers. Death, divorce, uh, other reasons. Uh, there are always some forced sellers. That can mean that house prices uh, are getting some sort of vicious circle, a vicious downward circle. Now, 
now I'm not saying that house prices are going to crash this year, uh, but certainly I can't see them going up. And I thought there are more risks to the downside than the upside. Needless to say, the Daily Mail has been proclaiming that the victory of Boris uh, will see house prices race ahead, and that will keep uh, its readers happy. But I'm afraid it is just not going to happen. Anyhow, that's enough macro thoughts from me today. I'll be back with some more micro thoughts on company-specific issues with the next issue of Share Profits Radio. I, I promise I really will try and get... And I won't get a guest in for next week because uh, I'll be recording in a strange part of Britain, not Wales. The week after, I shall try and get a guest back on the radio show. Uh, If you like my thoughts on things, why not sign up to Share Profits? It only costs £5.99 a month. You can access all of our 20 share tips of the year, which went up uh, over the Christmas period. Uh, Our our exclusive stories exposing liars and crooks and frauds on the London market. And my daily bearcast covering much of the same. Uh, once again, this show is free because it's sponsored by Open Orphan. Uh, that was the 19th of the 20 Share Profits Tips of the Year. So you can get a, uh, uh, go and read that over on Share Profits and see why I think it's such a fine company. I own shares in it myself, of course, uh, and no intention of selling uh, at even double the current share price. Uh, I would still be a holder. Uh, so you can find out more about it on Share Profits or by following the company at Open Orphan uh, on Twitter. Um, so thank you very much to Open Orphan for sponsoring this free podcast. I say that. Why not stop being a cheapskate if you're not a subscriber to Share Profits? Sign up now, five ninety nine, and you can get those tips and you can listen to me on Bearcast every day of the week. Uh, if you're a cheapskate, I'll speak to you in a week's time. If you're a switched on investor who wants to know what's going on, I'll speak to you on Share Profits tomorrow in Bearcast. Speak to you then.